Hi everyone, welcome to Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. Today is Indigenous Peoples Day, a day that this year is more important than ever to honor Native peoples in the United States and all over the world. Food Tank started out this year with what turned out to be our only uh, big in-person summit in January in collaboration with Arizona State University Sweetie Center for Sustainable Food Systems. The event focused on the wisdom of indigenous foodways, and we heard from dozens of Native academics, activists, farmers, journalists, chefs, and other experts who are sharing not only their traditional foods and practices, but their philosophy and knowledge of how to protect health, the environment, and our food and agricultural systems. What was important to us into the Sweetie Center is that we were amplifying the incredible work of Native communities. Dr. Kathleen Merrigan, the director of the Sweetie Center, said uh, before our event that she was looking forward, but at the same time, she was looking back. She said she realized that there's wisdom in in indigenous foodways, but that they've just not been given prime time. And she's right. Indigenous and native foodways deserve more attention. They offer so much for us all to learn from in terms of what real resilience looks like because of their strength and ability to withstand not only pandemics, but extreme weather events and so many other challenges. I had the opportunity uh, last week to talk to Ode Romero-Briones of the First Nations Development Institute about the need for protecting indigenous and native foods, why indigenous folks need more representation in the food system, and why it's important to cultivate that next generation of of young native agricultural leaders to carry on uh, so much of this work that needs to be done. A day was so inspiring and I learned so much during our conversation and I hope you will too. Thank you so much. I'm really excited about today because I get to interview uh, Ade Romero Briones, uh, the Director of Programs of the Native Agriculture and Food Systems Initiative at the First Nations Development Inst- Institute. She has written extensively about food safety, the protection of, of tribal traditional foods, and the importance of Native representation in the food system. She works on bringing awareness to the strengths that Indigenous populations can draw upon, a long, long history of working with the land, really strong agricultural traditions, and ample land on reservations. And she's also working on ways to engage Native youth in, in the food systems of their own communities. Um, and she's joining us today from Lodi, California. Ade, I'm so glad you could be here. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And hopa to all out there in social media land. <laughs> great, great. I'm wondering if we can start off kind of simply and if you can tell us more about the First Nations Development uh, Institute and, and what you all do and, and what sort of the goals are. Yes, absolutely. Well, I tell people I have my dream job because <laughs> to work with indigenous communities across the mainland, Alaska, and Hawaii. And we've been around since the early 80s. And we believe that when armed with the appropriate resources, uh, mainly money and financial resources, Native people hold the capacity and the ingenuity to ensure sustainable, spiritual, economic and cultural well-being of their communities. And so 
the Native Agriculture and Food Systems Program has been around for about uh, 20, 20 years, and we've been able to fund many projects, um, any from those from traditional food systems, the protection and perpetuation of traditional food system, all the way to more larger agribusiness um, enterprises that are in Indian country. And so we have the gamut of food systems that we support. And they're, it's my dream job. I get to interact with indigenous producers and farmers and hunters and fishermen and cooks um, all across Native America. That's amazing. And it, it is, I, I feel the same way about my job. This is my dream job because I get to talk to people like you and learn so much every day. You know, I, I was reading about you and you grew up in Cachiti Pueblo, New Mexico, and your your family, um, you know, worked in farming. And I, I'm wondering, can you sort of describe your so your your own personal evolution? I mean, you're you're not in farming as a farmer, but you're working with all these amazing food producers and 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 telling their stories. Absolutely. And um, I think I'm like many other indigenous people across this country, um, Alaska, in the world, actually, where we don't really consider like farming or production of food or or traditional food gathering as like work. It's sort of like just how we are, like how we be and how how we exist in the world. And so I grew up in Kochiti, Kotiet, as we call it, um, which is a small community of 800 people. And the majority of the people have the traditional agricultural background. And we, we farm in families, we have family pots, plots. And so I think I'm, I'm like many of the other Kochiti people in the world where we all grew up in families that are attached to their land and mm-hmm. the family activities around growing the growing season. And so I've never considered it work. It wasn't until I started at First Nations that I realized like, oh my gosh, I can incorporate some of my traditional values and upbringing into some of the work I do, which is, again, my dream job. And I think many other Kuchiti people, and if not Pueblo people, have had a very similar, if not identical, upbringing. And my, so, and really I, I went to law school because I wanted to help my community. And my grandpa is a, was a farmer. He's, he's mm-hmm. fast, but when I went to law school, I said, I want to help my community. And I became an attorney and a tribal judge. And I realized that, you know, by the time many indigenous people get into the legal system, like the point of, it's almost like a point of no return. Once you reach the legal system, you, um, it's harder to break that cycle. And so what my grandpa told me is like, well, granddaughter, you went to get all this college degree just to become a farmer. And I think it's true. I, I did all this education just to return to my community when I realized like all the values and all the potential to help my own community and to help me and my own family and my own children were really rooted in the soil and the roots that my people have planted for generations upon generations. So it took me a long time to recognize those values and mm-hmm. that bringing as something that is critical to to me and my family. Um, but you know, it, 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 was a, it was a good journey. 
And I'm glad I, yeah. I actually realized that at this time in my life, um, I took it for granted before. Yeah, I mean, I think that happens to a lot of us who grew up in farming communities. We took it for granted. We took farmers for granted. I know I certainly did until I got into this kind of work. And, you know, I, I think this idea that you mentioned before of being attached to the land, that's very significant when you're talking about your community. I mean, I've known farmers in New Mexico who've been farming the same land that their grandparents and great grandparents and great great grandparents, you know, over 400 years of, of people farming this land. It's, it's, it's part of you at that point. Absolutely. When my children were growing up, they say, mommy, like we're the same color as the dirt. Yes. <laughs> like, we are the dirt. We are that land. We, all the stories, all the values, all the love that I think we offer the world like comes from, that small planet, plot of land that my cousins and my brothers still farm today. So I, I totally agree. That's really beautiful. When, when you were talking before, you said something about when Native peoples are armed with the resources that they need, you know, they can do so much. They can bring back traditional uh, farming methods. They can bring back health to their communities. What are those resources? What kinds of resources do they need to be armed with? In addition to money, I mean, I think funding is, is fundamental and investment in these communities and investment in, in themselves. But what are the kinds of resources that they need? Yeah, I think that's such a loaded question because Indigenous people, I think, me coming from like the law school background realized that indigenous people are so regulated we have an entire code book that is right. referencing indigenous people all the way from the time you know they they moved us to reservations all the way to now like we have different jurisdictions and land bases in my own community i think we're surrounded by eight different federal agencies and so any water or any animals or any um, flow of resources from those mountains that comes to our reservation has to go through jurisdiction, federal jurisdiction mm -hmm. and agency. So we have to interact with those agencies. Um, so not only presently do we have to interact with all these federal agencies and state agencies, but we also have to deal with the, the weight of our history. Like we have, we've, our food, our food, traditional food sources and way of being have been disrupted right. at times. And so trying to reconnect and to reset those behaviors that started before those disruptions is really hard. So I think a lot of the resources that we need, one is of empowerment, um, whatever that may be, that may be self-empowerment, that may be empowerment from the agencies that surround us or the power players that be that are um, adjacent to our lands, all the way to the monetary resources that we offer um, and the, the wherewithal, this, the educational. In my own community, we have a dam that was forced upon us in the 1970s. And as a result... I think my community has lawyers, has engineers, has architects because we responded in those ways. And that's our way of kind of empowering ourselves. So that's one type of resources. So I think there's a whole gamut of resources that we need, but it really 
Um, the financial one is probably the hardest, and that's what First Nations does, is try to um, connect Indigenous communities to those financial resources that, in hopes that the rest of the resources will fall in place for Indigenous people to really connect their food systems. Absolutely, absolutely. During COVID-19, during this terrible pandemic that we've all been dealing with, has has it been more difficult than before to work with all of those different federal agencies that surround you? I mean, I know that there's been issues with school feeding programs and, and making sure kids are getting, you know, nutrition during this time, whether it's lunch or breakfast or dinner or snacks for the weekend or whatever. I imagine that you and, and those you work with are trying to restore some of those traditional food ways that have, you know, as you said, violently disrupted in the past. Have, have, has there been a lot of controversy working with those agencies during COVID? COVID-19, I think, is is controversy in itself. Sure. I think indigenous communities have been impacted by COVID at much higher rates than the general population. Right. And, and on top of that, we are not in the face of like mainstream media. We are not, our numbers are not posted out there. Um, for everyone to see what's happening in the communities. And before COVID, like indigenous communities are at the very end of the food chain. Like in my own community, we have to drive at least 50 miles to the grocery store to get like a gallon of milk. And it's, that's, that's the profile of many indigenous communities. Um, some have to drive even farther. And so when COVID happened, COVID happened and you have the disruption of all these food chains all the way from the transportation to the to the grocery stores running out of um, key items like meat and dairy and and flour like of course that's going to cause a lot of disruption in our communities and so we had to respond so the initial responses that you see um, that you saw in COVID was indigenous people and indigenous nonprofits and tribal communities really responding to their own people, which was like amazing and beautiful, but really, and it now we're having to hold federal agencies and state agencies accountable um, for some of these programs because we are citizens of these states. We are citizens of the United States and we, we are very much um, deserving of some of these programs and resources that are available to many other people in this country. But I would say like there is, indigenous people have been through pandemics before. This is not our first go around with a pandemic. This is not our first going, go around with trauma. And so um, you, I think in Indian country, you really saw like the beauty and the strength of how indigenous people can pull together to respond and take care of their people. It was, a, it was, it's an amazing, it's an amazing thing to witness for me. I can only imagine it sounds like so beautiful and powerful and shows that these communities do have the, the resources to react and, 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 you know, feed their own people. And that, you know, that that's critical, not just during a pandemic, but during, you know, so-called normal times as well. I, I, I know, you know, I, I read that you've, you've noted that there is an important difference in the way that Native communities view an economy compared to sort of mainstream, you know, white 
communities. And you said indigenous communities view an economy as a system in which a community manages its resources and they don't necessarily tie it to a monetary value, which is, I mean, I just love that whole phrase. (laughs) But what are some of the benefits of viewing an economy this way? Yeah, I think one of the things that um, that tends to be left out in the articulation of American history is that indigenous people were numerous here. That means that we fed ourselves. That means that we um, had community. That means we had culture. And, you know, that's rarely touched about, upon when people articulate American history. Right. And so to me, that just tells us that we've been feeding ourselves. We've been managing our resources for hundreds of years prior to the introduction of any monetary system. The first monetary system we saw in America was based on, like, deer hides, you know, like the buck like that's where we get the term, the buck is because sure. when settlers came, they saw the indigenous people trading deer hides. And so that became a source of currency that eventually was replaced with the currency of um, the cattle trade, hide and tallow. And it, it eventually became the monetary system that we see. But we existed prior to that. We had civilizations prior to that. And so I think when the monetary system came, that's when we really saw a huge disruption in how we manage systems because now everything had a value, but that value wasn't determined by us. That was, they were, it was determined by someone else, probably in Washington. And so like it, the value monetary value system just doesn't always match up with what we truly value in indigenous communities, which is like our people, which is our, our generational, intergenerational connections. There are just things you cannot place any monetary value on, like the value system that I talked about earlier with my grandparents. There's no way that I could ever put a value or monetary value on those, on those systems. And so that's really what I mean. There's so much more value than what we see on a dollar sign or a price tag. Absolutely, absolutely. And that that knowledge that your communities have that's you know literally in their bones. It's 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 passed down over generation over generation. And I think you can't there's no price you could place on that. That's but it's so it's priceless in 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 terms of how we deal, how you you know your communities deal with crises, whether it's a pandemic or climate change. And I I've you know I've had this experience where I've been able to travel the world and and talk to so many different farmers. And I think we have so much to learn from what traditional peoples all over the world, indigenous indigenous peoples all over the world, have been doing in terms of sustainable farming practices. They're not the ones destroying the planet. It's 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 the others, you know, it's people who look like me who are who are doing things in an unsustainable way. And so I feel like, you know, being able to learn from from what you all are doing is key. And, you know, I, I know that you've written a lot about the, the Food Safety Modernization Act. And I'm wondering if you can talk about some of the indigenous approaches to food safety and how they may differ from what, you know, sort of what what is a, you know, conventional thought about food safety? Yeah, well, I, again, that's a loaded question. Sure. I think because, um, it, you know, there's so many parts to that question. One is like indigenous people had a very, very 
berry diet, right? All the way from the people who ate salmon here in California, all the way to my people who ate corn in the Southwest. We had a very varied diet. Now in America, we have a very homogenous diet. People pretty much eat the same things no matter where you go. You will find a McDonald's, you will find you know, a fast food restaurant and a franchise no matter where you go in America. And so that has serious implications for food safety because the indigenous, I think, perspective is that you grow with your land and you grow with your food and you create systems that incorporate those elements and those relatives, whether it be corn or whether it be fish into the community and you become almost um, like cousins, you know, your cousins right. in the same land. And so the idea that food can make you sick probably means you need to do a better incorporation of that food into your system. But now we're dealing with all kinds of different foods. Maybe they're not even foods, right? There's a lot of chemical equations that now become things that we call calories and food. And so it's like a different adjustment and it's happening much faster and in, in real time um, than indigenous epistemologies mm. can incorporate. And so now when we talk about food safety, you know, we think of the stainless steel, steel sink and the stainless steel, you know, surface that can be easily wiped off when really like those, and we're talking about microbiology and things sure. that we can't see. And so like humans adjusting to foods that we're not accustomed to in environments we're not accustomed to really throws a wrench in how indigenous people view food because you can no longer incorporate your environment and your food system into your body and your community. Now you're having to rely on like sanitizers. And so I think the two approaches are vastly different. I, I haven't found like a bridge between the two, mm -hmm. but I'm at least at the point knowing that a traditional indigenous food system is much different than the modern system, which is the subject of the Food Safety Modernization Act. And you can't apply the Food System Modernization Act to an indigenous food system. I mean, those two are very apples and oranges, two very sure. different things. Does that thwart entrepreneurs in your communities who are working to, you know, we interviewed um, the the Tonka Bar folks recently who are using bison and cranberries to create a really nutritious uh, snack. And I, I wonder, you know, they're able, they were able to get off the ground with the help of, of a bigger company, but that's not so easy for small entrepreneurs. Absolutely. But I think when we started out this conversation, I, it's really about the genius of indigenous people. Like Tonka Bar figured it out. Other right. small entrepreneurs will figure it out. It's hard and it's, um, it's almost daunting. But I think one of the major issues is having the resources to build like the building that has all the stainless steel sinks, that has all the stainless steel equipment and sanitizers that you need to put a retail product into the stream of commerce. And so um, I think indigenous entrepreneurs will figure it out. It's hard and they need capital and they need right. technical assistance to make sure they get there. But, they, but I have no doubt small entre entrepreneurs in our communities can figure that out. 
Yeah. And that capital and investment is also how we started off. That's needed. And it's, you know, and, and, and deserved, I mean, you know, in so many ways. Um, you, you recently co-authored a report about indigenous California land stewardship and concentric ecology. And I'm hoping you can share with our, our viewers and listeners what concentric ecology means and why it's important. Yeah, well, I think what you've you've stated before, like there's such interest in indigenous worldviews right now, particularly around how we manage food and how we manage our environments. Um, And, you know, the term traditional ecological knowledge is used, TEK is used a lot. Um, And but we're saying, you know, concentric ecology is very localized and it's turned by uh, Ramaru Man, who is Enrique Salomon, and he coined the term, and it really references like the spiritual and the relational parts of ourselves um, that are related to our land, that are related to the traditional foods, that are related how we interact with one another, and you can't separate basically man from the environment, which we're starting to hear more and more of, that we're actually related. And so as a very simply like this understanding that we're related to the land that feeds us is um, concentric ecology. It differs a little bit from traditional ecological knowledge because that doesn't really say much. It just says, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's an old body of knowledge that's based on tradition. Um, and concentric ecology is a, is a little more refined in that we're talking about relationships between our land and people and the food and people. I think that, that that was so well said and, and sort of so poignant because I think what we found with COVID and I, what I, you know, the we I mean is the rest of us, not not native communities that, you know, our our own health is so tied to to food and and how it is grown and where it is grown and this idea of building, you know, thinking of of food as something that you're related to as, as someone or some being that you're related to. I mean, that's, that's fantastic. We should all be thinking that we're related to the land, that we're related to the animals that we eat, that we're related to the plants that we eat, because then we'd have a much more sort of holistic approach. We wouldn't do the things that have, have impacted the environment in such destructive ways. If we had that, if we had that sense of relationship. Absolutely. I think when um, one of my favorite quotes is um, from a California Indian basket weaver, and she said, you know, when, and they were, they were talking, they've done a lot of work on combating pesticides in the, in agriculture in California. It's because she said, you know, when the land is sick, and I put that root in my mouth to, to do the basket, like I'm going to get sick. And so, like, we can't separate ourselves from one another. Like, when the land is sick, probably I'm going to get sick, too. I mean, it's just like a very basic understanding, but we don't see it implemented or practiced very often in mainstream society. Absolutely. And this idea of food for health, you know, food is your first line of defense, is your first medicine, instead of, you know, the other way around where you take medicine to, to fight the diseases that your food gave you. Right, absolutely. I love that. Absolutely. Um, You know, I, I, 
I've heard you um, talk about, and I'm, I'm just going to quote you here, when you've talked about obesity in tribal communities, and you said, am I de- denying that many um, American Indi- Indian communities have higher than normal poverty rates, higher than normal obesity rates? Absolutely not. But we can choose not to claim these titles either. And I, I, I'm hoping you can describe why it's important to reject those titles. Yeah, I think, um, well, I think this speaks to the work we do at First Nations is, um, and Enrique Salomon, the the man who coined concentric ecology tells me a lot, is like we don't, we shouldn't start from like the Western perspective or the mainstream perspective of indigenous people. We should start from our perspective. And our perspective is, is like we we are not a diseased people. And I don't know, Anybody who's called like a disease people, I don't know any person who like responds positively to like feedback. And so the point is, it's like, yes, we have diabetes. Yes, we have poverty in our communities, but so do many other communities in in rural America. Like this Mm -hmm. is not something that is um, only in um, American Indian communities with indigenous people. We are corn growers. We created irrigation systems that now sustain the West. We created transportation systems that became the interstate highways that we know now. We've, we've, you know, offered the world like tomatoes and chilies and potatoes, all wonderful things, like, and focusing on this very refined disease that happened in a very short period of our history, just to me, doesn't do justice to all that indigenous people have to offer. Absolutely, absolutely. And it it gives so much blame and shame to people who don't deserve it because of all of the other amazing accomplishments that you've made through, again, through, you know, over generation and generation and generation that we're all benefiting from today. We all stand on tribal land. We, that was stolen from native peoples and we benefit from what you all were able to, to create and discover and, and imagine. And that is something that needs more recognition in this country, especially right now when we are going through this pandemic and there's a real need for a time of reflection. And so I hope that, you know, we can figure out a way to to honor what has been, you know, done before us. Thank you. I hope nature. I, I sincerely hear your words and I Take your words with me today. I apologize. Um, thank you so much uh, for, for all of this. I'm wondering, you know, this has obviously been a difficult time for so many nonprofits and research institutions. How can people help your organization? How, if, if you know, people want to donate or offer to be volunteers, how, how can they do that? Yeah, I would, I would send them to firstnations.org and just we have an entire grant da- database that is searchable by state, um, by keyword. If there's a tribe, we we're a granting intermediary, so our major goal is to get direct grants to the communities we serve. So I would invite you to go search that database. My program is the Native Agriculture and Food Systems Initiative and have fun looking up tribes and seeing what projects are out there. I'm sure there's one near almost everyone in this country that, that you could support either financially or, um, you know, culturally, socially, volunteer time. There's so many indigenous people in this country who have open doors right now. 
That's so great. So firstnations.org. And it is such an interesting funding model. The, the, the money that is raised goes directly to those communities. They decide what to do with it. it. You know, so many granting programs work kind of the opposite way where, you know, a program officer sort of tells people what to do with it. That's very innovative. Absolutely. I think that we wouldn't do it any other way. We are, I'm just a supporter. I get to like almost just observe when there's so many people on the ground putting their hands in the soil that are deserving of, of not only funding, but, but support in, in, in other ways. That's fantastic. Ade, it has been such a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you. I learned so much. I, I know our viewers and listeners did as well. Continue this amazing work for, for your peoples and for everyone. It's, it's, it's so inspirational, and I'm, I'm so glad I had the chance to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. Be well. Thank you. This is Rob Perra, Food Talks executive producer. Let Danny and I know what you think of the new podcast format. Send us an email at danielle at foodtank.com. Please feel free to suggest future guests and anything you think we can improve. Thanks so much for listening. Tune in next time.